by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Leah Summerglue. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. On the show today, using waste as a source of fuel. How diverting garbage to landfill could go towards powering your car instead. And is your house feeling cold in the winter? Today you'll hear a story about how many of our homes haven't been designed with the Australian climate in mind. Where many Australians have strong ties with the beach and coast, too comes the love-hate relationship we have with what lies beneath the water's surface. In 2016, there were only two shark-related fatalities in Australia. And while not forgetting the lives lost, it's a figure that pales in comparison to the 100 million sharks worldwide that we as humans kill each year. However, a new research project involving two researchers from the University of Technology, Sydney, could help identify sharks before they reach close to the shore using an artificial intelligence drone technology. Michael Blumenstein and Nabeen Sharma are both part of the project and say not only would it alert swimmers and beachgoers of sharks close to shore, but potentially ease the disease we have towards sharks themselves. To spot anomalous objects and uh, particularly if you're looking at sharks specifically, you need to have a good range to see what's coming up ahead and a broad you know, viewing angle and the best thing to do is do it from afar and particularly in the air because then you can see exactly the location of something but also where it's going and where it's trending um, and also what it's next to and where it's maybe heading towards. <laughs> in the case of sharks, that's very important. The thing that fascinates me is that it is able to differentiate between different types of sea life, right? Or it has a 90% degree of accuracy. Yes. If we can go to, I guess, this algorithm, which is figuring out what it is in the water, Mm -hmm. how can we break it down for what it is and how it registers something? It's like training a a newborn baby. Uh, We have to show a lot of samples of same object to the algorithm, and then it starts training itself. Once it is trained, it can start recognizing something unknown. If we train with with sharks and whales and many other boats and many other uh, marine life, and once it is trained properly in a real environment, it can start detecting them uh, without any assistance. And did you say it was training it with images? Yes, but uh, we need to say to the algorithm, like, okay, this where the shark is in the image, this is fed into the algorithm and it starts training by itself. So it's basically an artificial intelligence approach, which is, in inverted commas, hot at the moment. Sophisticated, lots of memory and complexity to it, but essentially the concept of of learning through some quasi-intelligent approach that uh, once it's trained, it actually can display the intelligence of a human that's making decisions about things. So you can even get it to be so accurate as to determine whether something's a shark or something that like very closely resembles a shark, like a dolphin? With dolphins, we are able to demarcate them very easily 
because we have trained the algorithm with many samples of dolphins and many samples of sharks, whales, and like eagle rays. It's easy. You know, once it is trained, it understands its movements, textures, the shape, and that's how it learns. There are situations where it confuses, but um, we have some other ways of handling this confusion. And what are those ways of handling that? Like if it is confused, like whether it's confused with a whale and um, shark, it might say it's unknown. Still gives a score for human-assisted. Like someone who is in a life-saving organization can check and say, okay, whether it's a shark or a dolphin. Yeah, there is a score for human interference in, in between. Right. Yeah, so the intervention aspect, I mean, this is a thing with AI, generally speaking. If you look at applications of AI... In other areas, the, the best technology allows you know, uncertainty there. But what you don't want is it to say it's a shark when it's not uh, because that can you know, instill fear or whatever. You definitely don't want to say it's a dolphin when it's not because then you could actually you know, harm lives or not facilitate the saving of lives. So having a, an approach where you can say, well, look, this is unknown, but we think it's a element of interest in the water – and forward that to an expert or a human that can make the make the call. One thing I wanted to say was the key point of all this that we're talking about is that you need enough data <laughs> to actually do the training. Because if you don't have that, you, you actually don't have the accuracy. And so you're talking about this data specifically is like the images that you're feeding to it. How many shark pictures do you need to show the drone before it recognises that there's a shark in the water? We are looking at between eight to 10,000 samples of shark. <laughs> So where, where are you taking these pictures? <laughs> <laughs> that's where our industry partner provided us these videos and images. And then we trained the algorithm with that. So, for example, the Ripper Group, which is the company we're partnering with, it deploys its um, drones out to do, you know, just for its own testing yep. purposes. And we've asked them to take as much footage as they, as they can. And the good news is that if you're very um, astute and you know the waters very well in New South Wales or even in Queensland, because that's some of the footage not just in New South Wales, it's interstate, you know spots where there's lots of sharks. And you can just deploy the drone there, capture as much footage as possible and come back. There's a partnership between the company and the Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales as well. And they do um, same sort of thing. They, they look for things um, using their own drones and we have access to that footage as well. So it's really useful. Say that the drone has spotted a shark, and then it's its job to tell someone about it. How does someone respond? What's the process of being alerted that there's a shark in the water? Well, there's there's actually a number of ways um, in which the company uh, that we're partnering with is looking to, to make that alert. You can do it in a sort of a real alert way with lots of noise, and there's even a concept of maybe putting a megaphone under the drone and actually oh, wow. directly informing you know straight away hitting the the swimmer or surfer or whoever's in the in the water with a, with a with a very loud signal to make them aware of um, of a danger um, all the way to potentially notifying the lifeguards or some home base uh, via SMS or some other communication so from the research angle we'd love to put forward a way in which we could even show the images you know MMS type format or however we, we want to display it. This is part of a larger agenda that our country, Australia, is grappling with. You know, it's terrible that we have three plus fatalities per year, but, you know, the number of incidents, you know, with people being injured and mauled 
is, you know, more like the 20s, you know, per year. It's in the best interest of the community. It's trying to say, what can we do to prevent these type of things happening? And what can we do to ensure safety moving forward? And so it's really good to be part of something like that. But the objective is really about trying to provide opportunities for safety. And look, at the end of the day, some people may feel more comfortable about it. It may be just something like a safety blanket or something like this. But to others, it can actually be something that will add value to the safe of an area. The Ripper Group's actually got a number of different technologies and, and components to their drone. Everything from deploying life rafts off off the drone itself. How, so, How would that so, work? Well, they've got a package. Um, and, you know, the drone can carry a certain weight. The package mm. is tiny in comparison to the size of the fully inflated raft. But it literally deploys, hits the ocean, and just, you know, inflates. Um, no so way. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, as I said, it's multiple ways in which safety can be guaranteed for people offshore or, you know, people in the water somewhere that, that need it. Michael Blumenstein and Nabeen Sharma from the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. Each year, 20 million tonnes of garbage goes to landfill in Australia, which is about 40% of the waste we generate. But what if we could give that waste a real and significant purpose rather than just stuffing it in the ground? Converting waste into a source of fuel is becoming more and more feasible and could reshape the way we power our cars, homes and cities. But some are concerned about the conversion process being expensive and damaging to the environment. Ben Madden is from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, and says although waste fuel conversations are only just beginning here in Australia, they're already in full swing elsewhere around the globe. Europe has had more of a driver for landfill minimisation than we have. I mean, we've got so much space that we can dig (laughs) an almost infinite number of holes to bury our waste, whereas Europe, they don't have that. And waste to energy has been well established in Europe for a long time. Part of the driver is temperature in Europe is a lot colder, so they have district heating and burning waste is a great source of heat. Obviously, over time, the, the industries have become more efficient and cleaner. You know, there's plenty of studies that look at the, you know, the actual emissions of these plants and they're comparable, if not cleaner, than coal or fossil fuel-fired Power doesn't necessarily mean it's appropriate to just take all of our waste and then burn it and turn it into electricity. That's obviously not good and sustainable outcome. But anything that can replace the use of fossil fuels is beneficial. And then when you also have the fact that you are minimizing landfill as well, they're the two benefits of of waste-derived fuel. So what sorts of waste are energy-rich then that we could be using? The most energy-rich material is plastics but really yeah wow. uh, but but problem with plastics is that they are you know very valuable for their materials mm. so it's not wise to take all 
plastic that does go to the landfill and turn it into fuel to burn it, or better, I can we'll be sending that waste to a advanced treatment facility to extract what recyclable fraction you can. They're very well suited for waste-derived uh, fuels just because of the energy content, but organic materials as well, so paper, plastic, textiles, and food, garden waste, they are also very well suited, but they also require quite a lot of pre-treatment, particularly for turning into these fuel pellets, mainly because they're very moisture-rich, so you need to drive off the moisture, you need to dry them, and then you also need to put it through some kind of homogenization process, which is usually shredding or grinding to a mm -hmm. constant size particle, and then you can compress into a briquette or pellet or whatever the fuel is. So waste of fuel doesn't necessarily mean solid fuel that you can burn in place of coal. It could mean creating an oil like biodiesel uh, from waste cooking oil, or it could be from you know, methane and biogas from uh, anaerobic digestion of organic waste. Is that energy efficient then? Not necessarily. Opinion? It depends on the kind of process. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's processes such as plasma gasification, which is basically you heat uh, the material up to above a thousand degrees i think or thereabouts and then um you know you drive off all the toxins you end up with a gas that's hydrogen rich and then that gas can then be used to create ammonia could be used for industrial hydrogen it could be used to create ethanol it could be used as a replacement for natural gas so there is a component of energy requirement for these processes but i think a lot of that is offset by the fact that you are creating these you know value-added products that are you know resource intensive themselves to produce i mean producing hydrogen is not easy and also for you know future thinking if sort of the you know, zero carbon zero fossil fuel energy landscape ever happens something like hydrogen would be very useful for things like fuel cells and, and things like that sweden for example are so reliant on waste for fuel that they're importing garbage from other countries, yeah. right? Do you see it as a bit of a catch-22? Because what if we run out of this waste? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, in an ideal scenario, we wouldn't be using any fossil fuel and we wouldn't be producing any waste. I don't think that's a scenario yeah. that is likely to happen. With really efficient you know, waste collection processes and really efficient recycling, you, you'll get to the point where you're not producing that much waste. I mean, there's countries in Europe where they've got a very, very low percentage of their waste actually does go to landfill. Mm -hmm. And what does go to landfill tends to be burnt beforehand. How bad is that for the environment? Because I know the Japanese as well burn their yeah. rubbish, right? Yeah, the Japanese do. Um, they had probably the largest fleet of gasification plants. Um, which is a slightly different process to just direct incineration, whereas in Europe, incineration is the, the dominant uh, waste-to-energy uh, or thermal processing process. How bad it's, is that for the atmosphere well, and in terms of carbon emissions? It can stuff? be bad, but you know, these are very, very, very regulated facilities, more so than fossil fuel, because I mean, you've got a lot of toxins that are potentially yeah. um, emitted into the atmosphere. So there's a lot of regulations around... That there's also, if the organic material is, well, the organic content of the waste that's being burned is higher, if that does go to landfill, that will decompose into methane, which is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So you're actually better off burning the methane or burning the, the fuel to produce uh, CO2 before it even becomes methane. 
you're better off actually using that methane to produce electricity and you know landfill gas capture which doesn't really happen that much in Australia it does happen in Europe and, and other places in the world and that that's what that is aimed at doing is just burning the methane that's produced from uh, landfill not necessarily recovering the energy it's more about reducing the harm of, of methane emissions and do you think it, it will succeed in Australia? It could be. I think the main thing stopping it, or the main barrier, will be the community acceptance, again, which is understandable. Whether or not it, that's something that could be, you know, maybe won over with more information, more studies, I'm not sure. There was a, an article recently in Inside Waste, which was based on a research project done looking at community acceptance of thermal processing. There was a concern about thermal processing, but their main concern was about the public health aspect. So again, as long as that can be regulated, whether it's only fuels that won't have some kind of uh, public health implication, or the process itself, again, if it's something like torrefaction, which is another process of heating, organic material, and producing these solid waste fuels, I think it can, I think it can take off. Ben Madden, Senior Research Consultant from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Have you ever sat at home on a winter's night and felt like it was colder inside than it was outside? Or, in the warmer months, felt it's just as scorching inside than standing out in the sun? Many of our homes are designed for climates of other countries, like the US and UK, but not necessarily for our own. And that's why sometimes through extreme weather, it may seem like your house isn't doing its job to keep you warm and cosy, or cool and refreshed. Wendy Miller is a senior research fellow from the Queensland University of Technology and says many Australian homes are leaky. I asked her what she meant by that. A boat is required to be watertight because if a boat starts taking on water, either over the top of the edge of the boat or through holes in the boat construction, then that puts the boat at risk of performing its purpose. And typically in a boat, then you you put in a bilge pump that takes out small amounts of water that leak in and the more leaky the boat is, the bigger the pump is. So from a house perspective, leaks refer to the uncontrolled flow of air into and out of the house through the building shell itself. So typically in Australian houses, that can be between the the joins between the floor and the walls, between the walls and the roof. It could be around door and window frames, underneath doors um, and all of that sort of thing. So if you can't control that leakage, Heat from outside, so if it's a heat wave, can travel into your house and make that house much hotter than it needs to be. But it's also if you do use air conditioning, the cool that you're paying for in your air conditioner can also leak out. So you're so it's like letting your money flow flow out under the door and through all the cracks as well. What makes a well-designed house? You know, is it double brick? Is it the direction that it's facing? What are some of the things that make a house well-designed and non-leaky? I guess. There's a couple of things. Um, I'm not one who believes in any particular one material. Mm -hmm. I think the the main consideration needs to be what climate zone are you in and really understanding what the nature of that climate is and the orientation. So in the southern hemisphere, if you face your main living areas and the long axis of the house facing the equator, so facing north, 
it will mu be much more affordable to produce a highly performing house thermally than if you face it any other direction it's possible to do but you have to make a lot more effort to do it so the most cost effective way of producing a energy efficient house is first of all the orientation and consideration of the climate and then it's things like how much shading do you need in order to make sure that they shade the house from the summer sun but allow the winter sun to come in to warm up the house so it's shading it's insulation it's materials how much heavyweight materials or thermal mass or thermal density you have depends on the particulars of the climate and the, the ability to ventilate when the outside climate is acceptable or you get a nice breeze whatever being able to bring that into the house and then being able to if the house does get too hot somehow being able to let that heat out are we going to have to start thinking in the future about how our current buildings are designed and how we're going to be designing in the future as well because the climate seems to be changing? So yes, we do have to consider, I think, our changing climate. And part of the problem with that is the way that our building regulations currently work. So that for new houses now, you in most parts around Australia, you have to get a particular energy rating for your house. So it's called a six star, which is sort of an indication of how comfortable your house will be and how much you might have to pump heat in or out of the house to make it comfortable. But the weather files that that is based on are taken from the 1990s in general. Mm -hmm. So we're building houses now with an expected life of roughly 50 years, but we're building them to a climate that is already, let's say, 25 years in the past. So one thing I think we really need to do is actually when we're designing houses now, give them a rating for how we would expect them to perform into the future, maybe at a halfway point along an expected 50-year life. So if I'm building a house now, I should be rating it for what we think our climate will be in the 2030s, for example, as well as we perhaps need to rate our houses by a stress test because it's often only in the extreme events that we get really concerned about the performance of the houses. Um, so maybe each house needs to have a stress test. So, um, can, so if you're designing a house today, what would happen if you applied to it for one week the temperatures that Sydney's been experiencing last week? How many days would it take before that house would become unlivable if air conditioning was not available, for example, if the network went down because the whole eastern seaboard was having a heat wave so, and the electricity industry couldn't cope with that stress. So maybe some sort of stress test is required so that we think about protecting ourselves before the bad event happens, before the extreme event happens, rather than thinking about it the day before the Bureau of Meteorology say, oh, we're expecting a heat wave next week. The main crux of your article as well is that if everyone gets an air conditioners and overuse them, then everyone is sort of paying for it. What are the effects of overusing air conditioners on the electricity grid and also on back pocket? Yeah, so in some instances, um, that horse has already bolted. So, for example, in southeast Queensland, 70% of houses have air conditioners and the bulk of those might have two, three or four split systems that are quite typical up here rather than ducted. So the electricity industry over the last 10 years has already spent millions and millions and millions of dollars 
on the network in case those air conditioners all come on at the same time, for example. And that's what we're paying for mm. currently in our day-to-day -day price of electricity in kilowatt hours. So in some ways, we're already paying for poor house design that's been going on for the last 15, 20 years. But then during a heat wave, if everybody uses their aircon and, and cranks it up a lot, and if they don't close their doors and windows and try to manage the building as well, those air conditioners are working really, really hard, which then works all the poles and wires of the electricity system really hard and enhances the potential for that network to overload and to then stop altogether, which then, so it's a sort of a cascading effect. Wendy Miller, Senior Research Fellow from Queensland University of Technology. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard today, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. We're also available on iTunes. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Leah Summerglue. See you next week.